So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Habakkuk chapter 2. We're continuing in this study of this incredible, uh, short but yet incredibly dense with information and truth, uh, the, the book that is the prophecy of Habakkuk. I'm excited to kind of continue this as we think about God's justice. Our sermon is, our series is titled Silence and Sovereignty. And we've seen in the last couple of weeks some big questions that Habakkuk has for the Lord. And these questions have revolved around the issue of God's justice. So today we're going to continue with that theme by talking a little bit more explicitly about God's judgment. Now, this is an odd topic, admittedly, in our modern times. In fact, I would say it's a somewhat ignored topic. When you hear the word judgment, most likely, you have negative thoughts. Because the word judgment just sounds, well, judgy. And when we think about judgment, we we think about the culture in which we live where everybody is a critic and, and everybody has something to say. People are quick to evaluate, critique, and judge others, and it's just not something we like to talk about. So some would say, Pastor, let's just talk about God's love. Let's just talk about his grace and his mercy, his justice. But what I want us to consider today is that you can't really talk about God's justice without talking about God's judgment. A just God must be a God who administers judgment. Without God's judgment, God's justice doesn't actually even exist. When you read through the Bible, you find that our righteous, holy, and yes, loving God is also a just God who always executes perfect judgment on his creation. God is always right, and he is always just. This has been a big point of the last two weeks of messages. But a right and just God cannot allow evil and sin to run amok in his world. Yes, I just used the word amok. You're welcome. I was very excited when I wrote that down in my notes. And I think you and I know this on a base level, don't we? That, that a society without judgment is a society that is set to crumble. If a man's wife and children were brutally murdered and that man were to say, you know what, who am I to judge? Uh, I'm not going to press any charges. What would you and I do? We would judge that man and I would say rightfully so, we would judge him. We would be angry, we would be frustrated, and with good reason. Why? Because justice demands judgment. So we move into an interesting part of Habakkuk where we're going to see the Lord pronouncing some judgments on his people and also some who were not his people. And we're going to read what are often referred to here in Habakkuk as the woes, and that's W-O-E, the woes of Habakkuk. And we're going to see some truths and some principles in these woes, but also what I hope to do this morning is kind of unpack and think through the judgment of God and how you and I should respond to to it today. So uh, with the Lord's help, let's go to his word. We're in Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to read verses 6 through 20, and then we will pray and ask him to help us understand what we've read. The word of the Lord says this, shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges 
Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are at work today, that though many of us strive to find life in many things that are silent and many things that are dead, we try to overlay it with the gold and silver of this world and all of the various idols that we worship today, but Lord, I pray that today we would see you for who you are in your holy temple, and Lord, that we would respond to who you are today. Lord, thank you for what you're going to do. We give this time to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, the first thing I want us to notice in this text is the shift in tone in Habakkuk. We've seen a shift from complaining, lamenting, asking questions, to now a place of faith, a place of confidence in the Lord. And we're going to see this continue in the next couple weeks of our study through the end of this book. But it starts with proclaiming these woes. In a very real sense, it's as though Habakkuk is saying, uh, no more questions, now it's time just to throw some truth out there. And it's the truth of God's coming judgment. There are five woes here in total, and traditionally, these have been considered directed toward the Babylonians or the Chaldeans. In fact, if you have an English Standard Version, which I'm reading from today, the little subtitle, which by the way, those subtitles are not part of the Holy Scripture. Those are things editors have put in, and they can be quite helpful, but in my Bible, that says, woe to the Chaldeans. But many biblical scholars and commentators would agree with what I would say is that the writer actually intentionally leaves these woes somewhat ambiguous. 
As we'll see in the text, the first couple of woes could very much apply to the people of God in Judah just as they applied to the Babylonians. So we see this happening here. I think it's wise to see this as a both and, that these woes are pronounced upon those who would hear and would have ears to hear. So we'll note that as we walk through these together. So let's walk through these five woes. I'm going to give them titles that are uh, not formal titles. They are Pastor Rusty titles, but they may help you organize these thoughts. So the first woe we're going to see in verses 6 through 8 are what I would call woe to wealthy opportunists. Woe to wealthy opportunists. There were those who were giving out loans to people who needed help, and that actually sounds like a nice thing to do, doesn't it? But history tells us that God's people had a problem with this. That's why the Bible often talks about the danger of money lenders, because they were known for using just ridiculous interest rates that were actually designed to eventually steal the possessions of those they were loaning money to. But you need to know that this is not a woe against wealth in general. In fact, the Bible has much to say and even honors those who would use their wealth to honor and glorify the Lord. But this is a warning to those who would hoard their blessings and even use their position and their blessings to get more instead of helping others. This was certainly true of Babylon as their empire grew. They would just take that empire and go and take more from other people who had less. This was some of the injustice, though, that Habakkuk also saw within the Jewish people. And again, you see that as you read through the Old Testament. But what the word says here is that there is coming a day when the debtors will rise up and it will be all over for you. Here's what we know. This actually happened. So, so for these Jewish people who had more and were using their more to really just take advantage of others, guess what? When Judah came, they weren't the top dogs anymore. They lost their positions because of that. And guess what? Babylon didn't last forever. They're, they're part of history because somebody came and took their top spot as well. There's a principle here that I think is really important. And it's so easy to forget, but you need to hear this today. Wealth is temporary. Wealth is temporary. Don't build your life pursuing more. Instead, the call is to use whatever resources you have to honor and glorify Jesus. Jesus warned us this way in the New Testament that you, you can gain the whole world and lose your soul. Another way of saying that would be woe to those who use their wealth for themselves. In verses 9 through 11, we see kind of a connected thought. Uh, This is what I would call a woe to me-centered people. Woe to me-centered people. This is, again, connected to our first woe, but verse 9 talks about evil gain. So those who would use their wealth only for themselves, specifically use their wealth and trust in their wealth to try to protect them. The, The text talks about literally elevating themselves. It said building their nest high. So think of trying to protect themselves. Maybe the the phrase ivory towers that we would use, but think protection. So so rather than worrying about the problems of others and the problems of the world around them, they're just going to look out for them. Y'all, this is a very American thing that if we're not careful, we can slip into. I used the phrase a few weeks ago, us four and no more, as the saying goes, right? For your family like mine, it's like, us eight, close the gate. We don't need any more, all right? We're done. 
But verse 10 says that people devise shame for themselves by cutting off others. And verse 11 says that their own house even responds and condemns them. Once again, uh, we, we see like a stone crying out from the wall. The beam's going to start talking and convicting you for the way you're living. Verse 11 says that their own house is condemning them. Again, we see that this woe really could go for the people of Judah or the people of Babylon. And again, it came to pass for both. Their riches and safety were only temporary. Friends, it is very American for us to try to do whatever we can do to build a good, safe, happy life. This is the American thing to do. Yet the Bible actually says, woe to those who spend their life and their resources simply trying to protect themselves. In some ways, I think this could say, woe to the American dream. Their riches and their safety were only temporary. We would do well, again, to remember the folly of wealth and power. Rather than hoarding our blessings for ourselves, the Lord would have us use our blessings to advance the gospel of Christ. Now, I want you to notice a clear but subtle shift. So these first two woes are really woes that could happen to anybody. They're, they kind of come based on your own actions, right? As the old saying goes, uh, pride goes before the fall, right? So, so these first two woes really kind of put themselves in that shape, but the next three are all going to be very directed by God's divine inter- intervention. In, in verses 12 through 14, we're going to see a woe to ruthless conquerors. This is very clearly directed towards the Chaldeans or the Babylonians, those who would eventually rule the entire known world, and they took over quickly and cruelly. Their kingdom was certainly, as the text says, founded in blood. The foundation of their kingdom was evil, but verse 13 introduces the covenant name of the Lord. So so we have not seen the Lord's name, but in verse 13, behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts? And verse 14 makes it clear, though you may conquer the entire earth, there is coming a day... When the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Verse 14 is amazing. I really just, when I was studying this week, I was like, we may just need to do one whole message just on verse 14. No matter what we see happening in our world today, you need to be reminded, though the nations rage, the Lord is still on his throne. And the entire planet one day will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters cover the sea. Come, Lord Jesus. But in the meantime, Putin's are going to Putin. My kids are laughing. They don't even know the name Putin. They just, I, just, I just said Putin. The name even sounds funny. Am I on his hit list now? Is that how this works? We're not live streaming anymore. It's fine. (laughs) Hitlers are going to Hitler. The nations are going to rage. But the call is to trust in the Lord. No matter what you see happening, friends, 
Do not live in fear. One day, listen, God's going to win. Verse 14 is a verse you should cling to. We're going to continue this theme in verses 15 through 17. We see a woe to those who bring wrath to others. The Babylonians were essentially playing God. And in the way they were beginning to conquer other countries, they were exploiting their neighbors. And the text says they were literally pouring out wrath, according to verse 15. But the Lord says his wrath is coming for them. The violence that they measured out would be indeed measured to them. This is a stern warning to those who would play God Because one day you will find yourself face to face with the one true God. And I know right now you're all thinking, well, he was talking about Putin a minute ago. No, I'm talking about you and me if we're not careful. Can I tell you what the biggest idol in your life is? It's not Christian nationalism, though that is one. It's not your family, though that is one. It's not money, though that is one. It's not sex, though that is one. The biggest idol in your life is you. And if you try to play God in your life, you're going to find yourself one day face to face with the one true God. For those who have not repented and believed on that day, they will be faced with the reality that their false God, whether it's themselves or some other idol, will not be able to help them. And that leads us to our final woe in this passage in verses 18 through 20. And it's a woe to those who trust idols. Woe to those who trust idols. I love the way that the Bible exposes idolatry. Uh, I've often said that one of my spiritual gifts is sarcasm, though I haven't been able to find that in the Bible. No matter, I mean, I've done a lot of Greek studies and I just can't seem to fit it in there. But look at verse 18. It says, you make it, then you call your creation God. And it can't even talk. You craft it out of wood and you say, wake up and be a God. Isn't that foolishness? But verse 20 brings the strong contrast. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. We have a God who speaks. And and listen, while you and I probably are not running to literal metal and wooden gods, we do tend to try to find hope, meaning, purpose, peace, love, and life in so many foolish and silly things. But the Lord is in his holy temple. You know what 1 Corinthians says? That you and I, if you are in Christ, we are the temple of Christ. So the call is to turn to him, rely on him, not yourself, not any other false gods. Woe to those who trust in idols. So admittedly, y'all, that was a lot. We've moved through this quickly. If you're not taking notes, you won't remember a third of that later tonight. But I want us to think about this for a moment because a natural question that you may have is why are we studying God's judgment toward people who lived thousands of years ago? How in the world could this be relevant to us? And obviously we've talked about some principles that we can find in these judgments that apply to us today. But I think that this morning we really need to see some big truths about God's wrath and God's judgment that that are important for us to think through as the people of God. So first I want to just reiterate what we said at the very beginning of this message, and it's this. God's justice requires his judgment. Now I said earlier that you and I know this on a really basic level. 
But here's what I know about me. I really believe in the importance of God's justice and his judgment when it comes to other people. Right? I'm all about that. Yes and amen. In our illustration earlier about the the family that is murdered. Yes, judgment should come. Convict that murderer. And I'm sure as the people of Judah heard these woes pronounced, they were like, yeah, get those Babylonians. And when I mentioned Putin earlier, you were like, oh, the Russians. Like we are very quick to pronounce and long for God's judgment and justice when it comes to other people. But the question becomes, what about you and me? What about us? If God's justice requires his judgment, what are we to do about our sins? What are we to do about the injustices we commit? We, we already saw walking through these woes, we can see some of our struggles in this. So, so let me kind of unpack what it is that I think we're discovering here as we think through this. First, you need to know that God is a holy God. Holy simply means set apart, but but specifically, God is set apart in the areas of justice and righteousness. God is always just, and he is always right. And because this is true, he must execute justice by bringing righteous judgment. So let me just be real honest with you today, friends. This should bring a real fear to the human heart. When we see God for who he is, when we see him in his justice, when we see him in his holiness, it exposes our unholiness and our injustice. And when we see how holy he is, we see how unholy we are. I think about Isaiah when he was taken into the throne room of heaven and he sees the glory and holiness of God. What is it that he said? Do you remember? Woe is me. He pronounced a woe upon himself when he saw the holiness and the glory of God. It's important that you hear me say this today, church. Every single person on earth stands under the judgment of God. Our holy and just God cannot and will not tolerate sin. He must punish sin if he is to be just and good. And his judgment is always right and always true. And the Bible makes this clear, and I think our own experience makes this clear. We are all sinners. We we have this rebellion hardwired into us. We naturally run from the good God who created us to worship him and enjoy him forever. And because of that, when we see God for who he is, we all, like Isaiah, call out, Woe is me. Every person on earth stands under his judgment. Woe is me. Woe is you. And when we're talking about his judgment, what we're ultimately talking about is his wrath. The wrath of God. When you hear that word wrath, I think we think in human terms. We tend to anthropomorphize the Lord. Yeah, I said anthropomorphize too. Amok and anthropomorphize. Your vocabulary words for the day. To anthropomorphize is to basically take the qualities of man and give them to God. That's not the direction it works. Do you know what the Bible says? That we are created in the image of God. 
But way too often, we tend to create God in the image of man. And that's why some of you with like father issues that are very real have a hard time relating to God. You're anthropomorphizing the Lord. So when we hear God's wrath, some of you are like, I don't like talking about the wrath of God. I just don't like to think of God as having wrath. Well, that's because wrath to you is like red hot anger and fury that is unjust. But God's wrath is not that way. His judgment and his punishment is always right and always true. And his judgment and punishment has come. His wrath has come. His wrath is coming. Unless you think this is an Old Testament thing, some of you are like, he got reading Habakkuk and he got way off base, y'all. Romans 1 makes it evident that, that this wrath is very relevant for you and I today. A couple of levels we need to think about when it comes to God's wrath. First, the wrath of God is being revealed today both in what theologians would call passive and active ways. First, uh, there's what theologians would call God's passive wrath. And this is the idea that God allows us to fall into the disastrous consequences of our sinful choices. So the first two woes would describe this actually really well, right? The idea that because we're walking in our own ways, the Lord allows us to see the fruit of our sin. And that is, in a way, his wrath. But at the same time, there is what theologians would call God's active wrath, like the final three woes where the Lord himself is intervening and causing his judgment and wrath to fall upon people and nations. Do not think that God is simply up in heaven watching what happens and not involved at all in the things of this earth. We believe in a sovereign God who still directs nations. He still blesses those who trust in him. He still brings judgment upon those whom he chooses to bring judgment. And he is even at work today revealing his wrath to us. But at the same time, there's a big piece of this. So we said God's wrath is being revealed. But at the same time, you need to know that God's wrath will be revealed in the future. We saw this prophesied here in this text that there is coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Verse 14 is prophesying about that. It says, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth. That's not talking about when Judah falls. That's not even talking about when Babylon fails. This is talking about when Jesus will literally, physically rule and reign over everything. And on that day, you need to know that every single nation, every single power in this world, and most importantly for you and me, every single individual who has not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ will face the unending wrath of Almighty God. Woe to those who face the wrath of God. He is just, he is right, and he must punish sinners. Oh, but friends, this is where the good news comes in. If you tuned out in the last five minutes because you were like, I don't like this, start listening again, please. Because we are a people of woe. But our holy and just God is also a God of love. And even though we are sinners, even though he must punish sin, Romans 3 puts it so beautifully God made a way to be both just, to punish sin, 
but to also be the justifier of sinners. Romans 3 uses that exact language. Jesus Christ, God himself, came down and took on flesh and lived a perfect life. Yet as he hung on the cross, the wrath of God, the woe that you and I deserved was poured out upon Christ. He took the judgment. He took the wrath of God on our behalf. He bore it all and he paid the price for our sins And he died and took it to the grave. But three days later, God raised him back to life, victorious over sin and death. And those who call on him as Lord and Savior are in that very instant. The moment you give your life to Christ, you are forgiven and free. And instead of living a life of fear, of judgment, instead of living a life of trembling because of the woe and the wrath that is upon you, we move from living a life of woe to a life of worship and praise, a life of wonder and love. So hear me when I say this, church, what starts off sounding like a very harsh message is actually the most loving message that can be proclaimed from a good God. A woe is a warning. The wrath of God is real. His judgment is really coming. And you and I must reckon with that today and respond to it. Two quick responses that we should have today to the judgment of God. First, repent and believe. The good news of the gospel is that though we are sinners who are under the wrath of God, we can be saved because of the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Oh, church, if you, if you are here today, friends, if you're here and you don't know Christ, let today be the day of salvation. We believe in a God, I said earlier, who, who directs nations. Can I tell you, the Lord directed you to be in this room today so that you could hear the good news of the gospel and move from living in fear to living in perfect love with the God who created you. That salvation can be yours today. The wrath of God is real and it will not relent, but grace is available to all who would humble themselves and come to the cross of Christ. But after we repent, the call is to then declare this gospel to others. This is a serious thing. Like some of you are like, man, this is heavy. This dude got a pulpit and started preaching. Listen. There is a better way, and if you're saved and you know that, why would we not be radically convinced of the need to warn other people? If we believe everything we've just talked about from this passage, why would we not tell our lost family members, neighbors, friends, and co-workers that there is a way to be saved? Not only do you repent and believe in the gospel, we ought to be people who are declaring the gospel. People can move from a life of woe to a life of worship, from a life of woe to a life of wonder, from a life of woe to a life of woe, like W-O-A-H, like shock that God would love them. I'm heartbroken today when I look at the modern church because I feel like one of two things is happening. In most churches, and we're not exempt from this if we're not careful, 
either we never warn people, we don't want to talk about God's wrath and sin and all that stuff. Let's just talk about practical, helpful, encouraging things. Like that's what we need to be about. Let's do that. And, and they never talk about this. They never warn people of God's coming wrath. And on the other end of the spectrum, sometimes we sit in our churches and we read passages like this and we say, yeah, they're going to get what's coming to them one day. I'm glad we got it right. As if in some way we're the good guys. This is where we need to get as God's people. Where we recognize that we are sinners who have been transformed into saints. Because of the grace of our God, not because of anything that we have done. So we want to run into the world and tell everybody that we encounter that there is a better way. We're not here to judge people. We have a God who is the good, perfect, and just judge. He's good at it. So, so God's the judge, so I don't have to be. Our church isn't a courtroom. We're not trying to make you judges so we can send you out into our world so you can judge appropriately. No, we are a hospital for sinners. And can I tell you, you are all miserable comforters and doctors. But praise the Lord, we know the great physician. And can I tell you, earthly doctors mess up sometimes, but can I tell you, the great physician is always right. He is always just. He doesn't get tired even when he's had to work double shifts in a pandemic. He is always right. He is always sure, and he loves us. So the call today is to run to him and then run to a sick and dying world and take the great physician with us. You know why, church? Because this blows my mind. This is God's plan, verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This whole earth is going to be filled with his glory one day. And do you know what his plan to accomplish that is? Us. Lord, are you, are you sure? I mean, I know these people. I know me. But Lord's plan to reveal his glory to our city, to reveal his glory in your home, in your life, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your school, in our community is us. So my prayer is that as one day the entire earth will be filled with his glory, my, my prayer is that today you would be filled with the glory of God. Your home would be filled with the glory of God. This church would be filled with the glory of God so that we go into our communities that the glory of God will be evident in West Wichita and beyond. Will you pray with me? Lord, I am so thankful for your gospel today. Thank you, Lord, for the truth that it brings to us, God, that, that though we are a people of woe, you are a good God who saves so, so my prayer, God, is that if there's anybody in here who is still living in fear and living under your wrath, that today will be the day that they come to the cross where you save and that they come to know you. And Lord, if there are people in here who maybe today 
already know you and they're already saved, God, I pray that, number one, you would put in our hearts this desire to go and proclaim this gospel to others. But, but Lord, I also pray for those who are in the middle of their journey still, like Habakkuk, they're confused, they have questions and concerns. Lord, I pray that you would let the gospel be what centers us today. God, we, we have questions, we have concerns, we have worries, we have big, big hurts but Lord, even though we don't have answers to every question today, we do know this, that we are safe and secure because of your gospel. So will we place our hope and our trust in you? Lord, thank you that even though we are great sinners, you are a great savior. So Lord, I pray that you would remind us of that and that we would come to you today just the way we are.